Howdy folks. My name is Miss Sinclair and this is Miss Sinclair's history. We are continuing to learn about AP US history and currently we are in period two. Now, according to the AP curriculum, period two looks at the pre-revolutionary time period in US history. So far, we have learned about our different colonial regions. We've spent a lot of time talking about New England. We've talked about the Chesapeake Bay. We've talked about the middle colonies and the Southern colonies. There's a lot more to dig into, however. So we are going to be moving on to topics 2.4 and 2.5. Now these topics align with the AP course curriculum. If you aren't an AP student, maybe you teach uh, AP US history, commonly known as APUSH, or maybe you just want a refresher on US history. Welcome, I'm so glad you're here. This is the exact same lecture that I give in class to my students. I'm just your ordinary high school teacher. So if you have questions or something's not clear, please ask. I want to make sure that you understand what's going on. But enough about introductions, let's jump into our content. Let me share my screen and we will get to that. Okay, topic 2.4 and 2.5, look at the transatlantic trade and interactions with Indians. So let's think back, let's try and remember a little bit, what have we learned so far? What do we already know? Remember, I recommend that you do this primarily as a self-assessment tool. Do you remember what we talked about yesterday, a couple of days ago? Can you compare and contrast the New England middle and Southern colonies? because this is a very common LEQ prompt. So an LEQ is a long essay question. It is one of the essay forms that you would see on the AP exam. So can you compare these colon colonial regions? Can you tell me what is similar about them? What is different? You, can you sort of make a chart listing these out? If you can't, if you're like, I don't know, they, they're Puritans in New England, I guess, uh, slaves in the South, right? That's an identification. So if you were going to get an SAQ, a short answer question, another essay uh, prompt on the AP test, they might ask you to identify differences between the colonial regions, identifying that New England was Puritan or that the Southern colonies were more heavily based on a slave economy could earn you that point. But unless you describe and explain how, why these differences matter, what these mean, then you're sort of up a creek without a paddle. So if you find yourself struggling to compare and contrast our different colonial regions, you might need to spend a little bit more time in your textbook, in your review book, or even simply rereading your notes. Like I said, we're looking at two topics today, 2.4 and 2.5. That means you will have two objectives. By the end of today, you should be able to explain the causes and effects of transatlantic trade over time. 
you should also be able to explain how and why interactions between various European nations and American Indians changed over time. So one of the historical thinking skills that the College Board pushes in their AP history classes is causation. How do things change over time? What caused what? How did this event lead to this other event? And these objectives are getting at that skill. So let's talk a little bit about transatlantic trade. I refer to this as the four phases of empire building. So phase number one, we know that the American colonies were not separate from the British crown. And so how did the British government, how did their policies towards these colonies change over time? How did they evolve? In the beginning, 1607 to 1650 hereabouts, we, might refer to this as the era of benign abandonment. So benign simply means um, not harmful. So you might hear someone talk about like, oh, I have a benign tumor. That means they have a tumor under their skin, but it's not cancer, it's not gonna hurt them, it's just a lump of flesh. So benign abandonment, what does this mean? It means England's not really paying attention. The British authorities are basically allowing for the colonies to do whatever they want. This gives colonists a lot of freedom and we can do whatever we want. We set up our own governments, right? Think about the House of Burgesses or the general court. We can set our own voting rules, our own rules about religious liberty, about education of women, what rights minority groups have. So this in many ways is sort of the rise of many small republics. Each colony had developed their own sort of colonial legislature. So sure, colonies had a governor from England who could veto laws, but these governors were dependent on the colonists, right? It's not like they could piss off all the colonists and be like, I'm just going back to London, no big deal, right? These governors depend on their colonial neighbors, their fellow colonists to feed their family to, they need to raise wheat, they need to raise cattle, they need a blacksmith, they need a doctor or a midwife. Heck, if nothing else, the colonists know where the governors live. And so if they piss them off too much, that means they could burn down your house, right? So the governors would be pretty unlikely to veto a law right? Or to do something that would really upset the colonists. Sure, they could write a letter and be like, dear king, I did this thing that would make you happy, but make the colonists mad. And now they want to kill me. Please come and help me. And then it would be like six weeks for the letter to get across to England. And who knows how long before the king saw it and who knows how long it would take before he actually decided to respond. And his response might be, uh, tough cookies, or it might be like, I'm sending some soldiers. Either way, six months have passed before you get a proper response and you could be dead. So typically our colonial legislatures had two houses. 
you might think of this as our current government, Congress, right? There's the Senate and the House of Representatives. Of course, our colonists were modeling this simply after the British Parliament, where you have the House of Lords and the House of Commons. In either case, the lower house of this bicameral legislature had general legislative powers, including the ability to set the budget and set the governor's salary. Also, these assemblies had the backing of public opinion and were more constant, right? So the lower house really represented the colonists. The upper house or the upper council or however the colony had it set up, um, the people in that part of the government tended to be appointed by the king. So they were less closely connected to the colonists themselves, but they still lived there. They're still your neighbors. So we see that elected uh, representatives are chosen, right? Not necessarily direct democracy, um, but colonists were able to have some say in who represented them in government. These local colonial legislatures set taxes. They were able to tax themselves. And so they felt really independent. We were able to keep what we had, right? Sure, over in Richmond, they're taxing us, but they're taxing us to build a bridge that will help us, right? It's not like the British crown raising taxes to help their colonial wars off in Asia. What good am I getting out of that as an American colonist? No, a bridge though, a bridge is gonna help me make more money because I can get my goods to market. Over time though, the crown is going to go through its own changes. You're gonna have changes with kings, you're gonna have changes in policy, and the British crown is going to decide to get more involved. We might refer to this as the era of militarism. So militarism meaning sort of more military, more focused. And this is where you see the introduction of the economic system known as mercantilism. So this period is gonna last from about, about 1650 to 1720. Now these divisions I am giving you are not, if you just said like, oh, this was the era of benign abandonment on an AP test. No one else would know what that means. This is something that I have used and I have seen a couple other teachers use, but it's not something that's common throughout the histor historiographic um, conversation. However, mercantilism is. If there is a term that you need to have memorized, that you need to understand on like a very deep and visceral level from this unit, it's gonna be mercantilism. So this is a series of European policies, not just applicable to the UK, but all of Europe, that is essentially a economic system between the mother country and the colony. The idea is basically to funnel all wealth to the mother country. So you always wanna have a favorable balance of trade. Now, ideally your balance of trade is balanced. So sure, one side might be exporting a lot. 
Um, and one side might be importing a lot, but you're about equal, right? That's when you start hearing people talk about like, oh, a trade war and like they're going to raise tariffs. And that means everything's more expensive and like it's bad for everyone's economy. So you typically today, we want to keep the balance of trade equal. Mercantilism very specifically does not. It wants to be favored for the mother country. So what does that mean? It means the colony produces raw materials. These raw materials are sold very cheaply to the mother country only. So let's see, um, we might think about the American colonies producing timber or fur or food. They are selling this directly to England and they can't shop around. It's not like they can offer to sell to the Dutch and get a better deal. No, no, no. They are selling to England at a very low price. England is buying all these raw materials for cheap, processing them into manufactured goods, and then selling it back to the colonies at a higher price, right? This is not capitalism. It's not competition because there is no competition. Colonies can really only do business with their mother country. This means the mother country is making a lot of money because they can compete, but the colonies are sort of trapped in this economic relationship. It's a way to bring money into the treasury, basically. All right, so let's talk about the navigation acts. The navigation acts are the way that England put mercantilism into practice. It's a series of laws to bring money into the treasury, to develop the imperial merchant fleet, to channel raw materials to England, and to keep foreign goods and foreign vessels, basically competition, out of colonial ports. You have to understand a little bit about what's happening in England. There is a lot of unrest, to put it uh, neatly. You are going to see Oliver Cromwell take power. And he has the goal of controlling worldwide trade. Currently, the Dutch really controlled that. But by 1660, everything has to go through the UK. So sure, you might eventually sell to the Dutch, but first it gets sold to London. So England at this time is developing colonies all over the world, right? It's not just in the Americas, but they also have colonies in the Caribbean and they're trying to develop colonies in Asia. They need to grow their military to defend their colonial gains to fight back against their European neighbors like the Spanish and the French. So we start to see these navigation acts causing geopolitical problems. What does that mean? Well, geopolitics is essentially international politics, but more of an emphasis on geography. So based on who you're nearby. So one of the things that the British needs, if they're gonna have everything shipped to London first, 
and you can't use the Dutch anymore. Well, you need more ships simply. So that's a benefit to the colonies because they're producing the timber. So they are making the ships to sell until the British say, oh, no, 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 stop that. We don't want to buy your ships. We just want the wood so we can make our own ships. And then maybe you can buy them from us. But we want British ships with British captains whose home port is London trading with the Americas, not American ships with American captains whose home port is Boston trading with British merchants. We see that on these ships going across the Atlantic Ocean, 75% of the crew will be British, not American. And no manufacturing is allowed in the colonies. This really helps British merchants, right? It's going to help the British wool industry. It will help British factories. Imagine if imagine if it's not just a case of Sure, more things are built in China, but things were, it was illegal. Like it was, we were unable to open up factories in the United States. So we could only buy things from China, right? You might have heard about the recent microchip to act because they want to build more microchips in the US. And so we are less reliant on China. Well, imagine if we, that wasn't even an option, right? The only way, the only place we could get our manufactured goods was from China, was buying from China. It's a similar thing, right? Um, they, um, obviously the American colonies and the British crown have a much closer relationship than the United States and China does in 2022, but all the manufacturing is across the Atlantic. So since you can't trade with other countries to get a cheaper deal on your manufactured goods and you have to trade with the British by law, what are you gonna do? Well, you're gonna ignore the law, right? We see a huge increase in smuggling. And what, what are the British gonna do, right? You see smuggling, especially from the Caribbean to the American colonies. They don't have satellites. They don't have drones. They don't have cameras. They have manpower, right? Heck. They don't even have electric light. Like they don't have spotlights. How are you going to watch every inch of the Atlantic coast to make sure no one is sneaking in goods? We see that the Navigation Acts um, included laws like the Molasses Act. Um, so... The Molasses Act said like we could not import molasses. Um, and everyone's like, mm, we're just ignoring these laws. Americans wanted to buy French brandy, right? Um, we couldn't. So we were forced to buy whiskey or gin instead. So one of the ways that they got around that was by buying molasses from the French islands in the Caribbean. And then we'd make our own rum. The Molasses Act was designed to stop that and we just ignored it. Any teacher or parent knows this. You also might know it if you've ever had to lead a group or you're a babysitter or you've had to coach a team of younger children. 
If you say that there's a boundary, that there's a rule, but you don't enforce it, well, then it's pointless, right? Parenting advice or teaching advice will also typically say like, don't, don't create rules that you can't enforce, right? It just makes you look weak. And that was the problem here. The British passed all these rules saying, oh, you can't do trade with other countries. You can't do this, this, and this, but they couldn't enforce it, right? They're across the Atlantic ocean. They are a small Island. There's a lot of coastline in the Americas to cover. Also less competition means the raw material prices drop. So Americans can't borrow funds to buy or sell goods amongst themselves. We start to create paper money within the American colonies to sort of make up for the lack of hard currency, but then this can lead to inflation. It's not like the crown was paying their royal officials very well. So you're willing to bribe them as you smuggle stuff from the French um, colonies in the Caribbean. Great. Everyone's happy. Well, everyone except for parliament. So era number three, the era of salutary neglect. Richard Walpole is our new prime minister in England. He is part of the Whig party and he primarily came to power by promising nepotism. If you get me into power, I will give your son, your nephew, your cousin, whatever. I'll give you a job. And in this time, parliament is really supreme. So radical Whigs undermine Walpole. The problem is at this time, King William dies and has no heir. So British politics are a mess. Walpole basically takes the idea of like, I have too many fires to put out in England to care about what the American colonists are doing. They basically decide to explicitly look the other way while Americans violated the Navigation Acts, right? If there was uh, no restrictions placed on the colonies, they would flourish. But while this might help everyone economically, since everyone just ignores the laws, over time it leads to less respect for parliament, right? Americans over time start to realize what, what good are we getting from parliament? We can just ignore their rules and there's no consequences. So critics of this calls this entire system corrupt, right? Really, the UK just wants the Americans to behave, right? They don't want fighting. They um, just want the colonists to govern themselves and send money basically to England. So we see that the colonial elites start to consolidate power. This means that the king appointed governors lose power. And over time, colonies become more and more independent. Well, the, politic, the political mess in England will clean itself up and the crown will turn its attention back to the American colonies. We might refer to this as the era of empire as the crown tries to 
regain respect, authority, and control over the colonies. Dun, dun, dun. So if you were a British politician, which would you encourage? Salutary neglect or the enforcement of the Navigation Acts? Right, think practically. None of these colonists will be voting for you. You do have um, local supporters that would be significant in the form of merchants and captains, the British Navy. On the other hand, if everyone can make more money, how do you enforce these acts across the ocean? It's, it's kind of a dilemma either way. So what would you do? Try to think about the pressures and also just the economic and political ramifications of each choice. Okay, let's talk a little bit about topic 2.5 and the interactions with American Indians. We're gonna take a step back looking at the Americas in general and the interactions of the Spanish and the French with Native Americans as well. So let's start by talking about the Spanish in the Southwest. By this point, the Spanish are getting quite the bad reputation, the black legend, um, as it becomes known. Juan de Onate is going to um, discover, quotation marks around that, the Rio Grande in 1598. And Onate is going to start setting up these encomiendas. But he is a jerk, to say the least. I mean, he's a rapist, he's a murderer, um, he's a thief. As he is in the Southwest, he will steal food from the Pueblo Indians he comes in contact with. He'll steal clothing. He will murder and rape anyone who refused his advances, refused his um, to do what he wanted. He would just assault them. When he was in New Mexico, his nephew and like 10 other dudes get killed because they were stealing, raping, murdering. And in revenge, he murders over 800 native people, captures and enslaved 600. Well, captured 600. Of those 600, the women and children are sold into slavery and the men had one of their feet cut off, right? A, no anesthesia. B, no aftercare. They're all getting gangrene. Um, and C, how can you farm or hunt with one foot? So this sort of Spanish brutality is not uncommon. We will start to see over time as the Spanish realize we can't just keep doing this. Um, they will cooperate. Um, but I mean, for a long time, what the Spanish would do because part of their motivation was to convert people to Catholicism. They would like come up to a Native American community um, in Spanish, basically be like, look, unless you surrender and you know become Catholic, we have the legal right from the Pope and the King to conquer you, enslave you, murder you. And the Native American people would be like, we don't understand you. We don't speak Spanish. What are you saying? And the Spanish response would be like, well, they refused. 
they refused to surrender to us and convert to Catholicism. So now we're going to murder them. The Native American people are like, we have no idea what you're saying. Why are you murdering us? I mean, their answer might have been the same either way, but come on, at least try to find a translator. So it would be incorrect to assume that the Spanish just swept up through North America and every indigenous tribe that they came across just like lay down and were conquered and like no one stood up for themselves. First of all, before you actually had Spanish armies coming up, the diseases had spread much more quickly. So communities were already devastated by the spread of measles and smallpox, leaving them weakened and more vulnerable by the time Spanish arrive. And we do see that tribes fight back. Let's talk about Pope and the Pueblo Indians, the Pueblo Revolt. By 1610, the Spanish realize there's not just like piles of gold sitting around in the Southwest. In Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, there were actual piles of gold, right? It, you could look around and be like, oh, I want that gold mask. I want that gold earring. But here in the Southwest, it's hot. It's incredibly arid and it is a rugged beauty, but it's... Mm, I wouldn't live here without air conditioning. Let me just say that. So the Spanish decide, you know what? We're just, we're getting out of Dodge primarily. The Southwest is perhaps not worth the investment. They will continue going up the California coastline. You might hear about the mission system in California, but the Southwest will have less focus. Franciscans will, the Franciscan monks will refuse to leave and they will found the city of Santa Fe in 1610. They will build over 60 missions in New Mexico to convert the Pueblo Indians. And because, you know, just a conversation wasn't working, by 1675, the Franciscans started to force conversions through intimidation and violence. One of the ways they did this was by destroying the Kivas and the Kachin, uh, Kachinas, the, um, oh gosh, the Pueblo Indian sites of worship and honoring their ancestors. They would also whip or hang anyone they found practicing traditional religion. So in the Pueblo revolt in 1680, well, one of the things you have to understand is that the European population in the Southwest was very small, right? New Mexico's entire co colonial population was less than 3,000. And these were primarily mestizos, meaning they were mixed race people. Over time, the relationship with the Pueblo Indians have deteriorated. The Spanish have exploited the native peoples, right? In 1600, the Pueblo population was 60,000. By 1680, it was 17,000. Many native peoples practice religious syncretism. They just added Jesus and, you know, St. Mary, the other Catholic saints to their um, altars, right? Just added Jesus and these other saints to the other gods that they have. But the Franciscan friars were not okay with this, right? There's only one God and Christ is his son. So 
They would destroy any idols that they find, any masks. And then in 1660, a drought begins. The drought leads to neighboring tribes like the Navajo and the Apache starting to do raids to make up the difference in their own food supply. And the Spaniards don't protect the villages and missions from these attacks. Pope is a Pueblo Indian. He's a religious shaman in the Santa Fe area. He's born in 1630 and he will be arrested and publicly whipped for practicing his indigenous religion. He will urge everyone to return to their old religions, essentially saying, look, the reason why we are being oppressed by the Spanish is because we have turned away from our gods. Return to the old traditions, we'll be able to defeat the Spanish and life will go back to normal. So he organizes a revolt in August of 1680. 400 will... um, 400 Spaniards will be killed and the attack will force the rest of the Spaniards to abandon the city of Santa Fe. It's going to be our most successful Native American uprising in North America. Pope and the Pueblo Indians will hold Santa Fe for 12 years. By 1693, the Spanish return with a new policy. They get rid of the encomienda system. They allow for religious syncretism, so they don't mind if the native people practice their traditional religion as long as they also practice Christianity. And so a new culture starts to emerge in New Mexico, a real blending of indigenous traditions and European ones. But this effectively halts Spain's push for empire northward. By 1690s, the alliance between the different Pueblo Indians had broken down and Spain was able to conquer the territory, right? So they only hold on to this for 12 years, then Spain takes over again, but they will be much more tolerant. John Green and Crash Course U.S. History will dig into this a little bit. It's, It's a good summary. All right, what about the Puritans? What about the British colonists? Well, we see that there are a couple different conflicts with the um, native peoples. First is the Paycott War, which is a conflict between the Paycott tribe and Massachusetts colonists. The colonists will actually ally with other tribes. The um, Naringasent and um, Moagan tribes against the Paycots. And this alliance allows them to be victorious. We see this throughout American history. I mean, by that, I mean the history of the Americas. The Europeans and their descendants often don't sweep in and just defeat indigenous peoples by themselves. You have to remember that Native American Indians are not one monolithic group, right? They're not just one tribe. They are hundreds of tribes and they have their own very complex social and political systems. We might be familiar with the War of the Roses or the Borgias or even the political intrigue of 
like Game of Thrones, which is based off European political intrigues. And sometimes we forget that every human society has Game of Thrones level political intrigue, right? You have Native American tribes who are pushing for their own interests against other tribes for territory, for wealth, for power, for vengeance or control of a trade route. And so it makes sense that these tribes might choose to ally with these new European colonists if they think it can give them a leg up on their enemy. The Pecot Indians will be captured and sold into slavery and survivors will just be absorbed into other tribes. You also have what becomes known as King Philip's War in 1675, AKA Medicom's War or uh, Medicom's Rebellion. His name is not King Philip. This is the name that the British gave him. Medicom is the chief of the Wampanoags and he will unite the tribes in the Southern New England area against the settlers. The settlers had begun to take native land and thousands on both sides die. We see dozens of towns and villages destroyed. It's a really brutal war. And this is not a case where you have two sides fighting against each other, right? Where you have like a line of Native Americans fighting against a line of American colonists. And the only people dying are soldiers, so to speak. But this is much more brutal and it encompasses civilians. You see raids on Native American communities where women and children and the elderly will be targeted. You also see raids on colonial communities where again, women and children and elder, the vulnerable, are targeted by both sides as a way to try and pressure your enemy into giving up, right? Eventually you might decide it's not worth it. It's not worth all of our vulnerable living in fear, being at risk, dying, so we can win this battle. Thousands die. Ultimately, the colonists win. And this really ends organized Indian resistance in New England. So Sean Green has a crash course um, video on just the relationship between Native American tribes and the English specifically. I really encourage you to watch that one as well if you feel like you need more. But that's it for us. So I want you to be able to explain the causes and effects of transatlantic trade over time. Mercantilism is the key idea here. And then please explain how and why interactions between various European nations and American Indians changed over time. A couple final notes in relation to these summaries. For the first one, transatlantic trade. It would not be incorrect for you to connect this prompt to the Columbian exchange with the spread of diseases or it would not be incorrect for you to connect this to triangle trade and the arrival of slaves into the new world and the increase of chattel slavery. You might consider what are the causes of these things and what are the effects of mercantilism, of the Colombian exchange, of triangle trade and chattel slavery. Similarly, we've talked a little bit before 
about the way different European states interacted with native peoples, how you saw the French intermarrying with tribes, um, how you saw a very complex racial caste system in the Spanish colonies that also allowed for mixing. But we will see that the English, the British never really do much mixing. They always keep themselves very separate. There is much less syncretism. So by the end of the um, conflict in New Mexico, sort of a stasis had arrived that allowed for a mixing of uh, Spanish and Pueblo traditions. We're not going to see that emerge in any of our British colonies. If you have any questions, please ask. Please share this with your friends, classmates, fellow teachers, anyone who you think might be interested. And if you have a chance, please rate and review this. Remember, you can either listen to it as a podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or you can watch this with the PowerPoint on YouTube. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.